0: Hello and welcome to the Leaders with Ambition podcast series, the podcast that delves deep into the careers of some of the most successful leaders working in professional services firms across the UK, US and internationally. We aim to discover the secrets behind their success, the challenges they have overcome and to find out what traits make a successful leader. Hello, and welcome to the latest in the Leaders with Ambition podcast series. And today I am absolutely delighted to welcome my guest, Nick Waterworth. Now, some would say Nick could be the ultimate leader with ambition, as he is the founder and chairman of Ambition, so also my boss. So I'm going to be very nice in this podcast today. It's a really interesting story ahead. We've got Nick, who grew up in the UK and then kind of found recruitment, and recruitment found him maybe, and how he then started to develop his career and decided to move over to Australia, which is a really interesting stage of his life. It then leads to him growing and developing ambition as a firm, and the amount of Real value led system that he based and put into wanting to grow ambition, it leads to some challenging times which Nick will share with us and also some real highlights, particularly Nick around some of his various locations that he had subsequently grown, he'll also share with us some insights around ED&I hybrid working. And also the challenge that we faced as a firm with COVID, but how he really used that time to start to focus ambition on its next iteration. So, without further ado, I'm going to hand over to Nick to bring his career history to life for us. So, Nick, over to you. What was Nick growing up like? Thanks, Nicky. And I really appreciate being asked. It's a very prestigious
1: series that you have. So, I'm, I'm delighted to take part. Yeah, so I was. Born and brought up in Warwick in the UK. My dad had been in the army. He was in the Second World War and, in fact, was a prisoner of war for 12 months. And then after the war, they had lived in Palestine and Greece and Malaya, as it then was, before going back to the UK. And he was posted to Budbrook Barracks in Warwick, which is where Nicholas popped into the world. So I then went to. Warwick School it was back in the generations when almost everybody walked to school if you possibly could. I I did that. I was a kind of quite spectacularly poor student at school. I was very keen on sport and played rugby, you know, at a reasonable level, but academically, kind of nothing really interested me, and as a consequence, I achieved not much, until going into year 11, or as they called it, the lower sixth back then, I chose to do economics and economic history, which was taught by a teacher called Martin Green. And I think most people have one, and he was mine. He was an incredible teacher. He was a fascinating person for me at the time, mainly because... He was a massive Monty Python fan, as was I. And this was made all the more appealing because certainly my parents hated Monty Python. So to have a teacher that liked it made him, as I say, even more appealing. Um, He was extremely clever. He was also the coach of the First 15 rugby team. So he was just like my hero. And from, as I said, being pretty hopeless, suddenly there was this person who took an interest And I wanted to do well for him. And that course, that two years with him, maybe changed my life. It certainly changed my school career and got me through with an acceptable results in in the A-level where I was drifting towards very poor results.
0: Subsequently, did you have a conversation to let him know the impact he had on you?
1: Definitely. I have. And in fact, during COVID, something Popped up maybe on the on the website or something for the school, and he was doing a a podcast like this on the economic history of Warwickshire. So I joined along with I think something like fifty five people from my year group. Wow, you know, a long time ago. So that shows what an appeal he had. So yeah, uh, definitely I definitely shared with him how much I appreciated that and, and enjoyed working with him. So. That was a big effect in my uh, I think in my life. Um, as a result of doing reasonably well at school in economics and economic history, I decided to do that at university, like uh, a lot of people back then. So I I chose to go to York University because A, they offered the course that I wanted to do, but perhaps B, more importantly, it was a long way from Warwick. And that's <laughs> I was trying to get University, which was a long way from home. York ended up being great. It was a great three years. I liked the Yorkshire people. The course was quite decent. Heavily involved in
0: sport again, Nick,
1: there? Yeah, I did. I, again, played rugby. I was lucky enough to play in the... I mean, it wasn't any great standard, but it was just so much fun. I was lucky enough to play in the first team for three years and, yeah, had a lot of fun on the Saturdays we used to play against club sides around Yorkshire and that was you know for a 20 year old there were some pretty tough lessons you learned there you know playing against this steel mining village rugby team that was reasonably
0: imagine
1: I look back very fondly on those times so that was the late 70s believe it or not and um
0: Did you know what you wanted to do then, Nick, though? Because it sounds, you know, you wanted to obviously study something you were passionate about. You knew you wanted to go to university. What was the next step?
1: The next step was to not go into a career job. I was very focused on doing a job, saving some money, and then doing some travel for a year. So I had really what was quite a fun job, putting up marquees for weddings and parties and stuff back in Warwick, which wasn't all that well paid, but I was living at home and it was it was a lot of fun. And I thought, this was great. I'll do this for six or nine months and I'll do some travel. My mum and dad didn't think this was such a good idea. So they were encouraging me or pressurising me, whichever way you want to look at it, to apply for career jobs. The only thing I knew on the sort of career side was that if I was going to do a serious job, it was going to be in London because I thought that was, first of all, that was going to be fun and that's where maybe the best prospects were and through and, uh, you know, immediately after uni, that was the plan and kind of strangely, one of the things that I'd done best at at uni was statistics, when I say strangely, because that's, it's not kind of my thing, but I did very well at stats. So I thought I'll apply for jobs that have got something to do with that area. And I applied for one for a company who were on the Strand in London, and they called me down for an interview. So that's good. So off I go. We start the interview for this management information and statistician job. And halfway through the interview, they stopped and said, sorry, we don't think you're appropriate for this job. Now, as I said, I was quite focused on putting up my marquee, so I, did, I sort of didn't really mind, but I was a bit disappointed not even to make it through the whole of the interview. Yeah. I can remember that. But they said, however, we're looking for trainee recruitment consultants. Would you like to apply for that? And I seriously had no idea what that meant but said yes. So they interviewed me for that, and 10 days later, an offer letter popped through the, the front door and uh that was how I got into recruitment. Fantastic.
0: And so you you moved to London. So you ticked one box because you always wanted to live and work in London. And you started your career in recruitment. Was it what you expected it to be? You didn't know what it was going to be like. Was, did it achieve your expectations? Well, where it exceeded my expectations was how much fun it was.
1: Mm. You know, I had this picture of a sort of serious career job was kind of all work, Not much humour, you know, very serious. Perhaps because one of the, you know, we all did work experience going through school, and one of the places I went was into a quantity surveyor's (laughs) office, and that was literally like watching paint dry. That was not the most interesting thing. So I sort of thought all jobs were like that. But in fact, so I joined this little company on the Strand, and it was a lot of fun. The training was pretty good. So it really it exceeded my expectations from that point of view. I definitely enjoyed living in London. I lived with my brother for a short sure while and then went to share a, an apartment with a couple of people I was at university with. So London was great and the job yeah was more fun than I expected.
0: The food wasn't great in London back then though, Nick. That's changed a bit,
1: hasn't it? No, probably <laughs> back then food wasn't a big uh, priority for me, but... Uh, <laughs> You bet how it has changed big style. You did, right? Yeah.
0: So, you started to develop your career, and I think you you were there for a short period of time and felt that it was time to move on to a slightly bigger company, but a company that maybe had more focus, more drive. And you went and interviewed at Michael Page. Yeah, that's exactly
1: right. So, the, the first place on the strand that said was a good company, but they weren't focused on growth, which is fine. That was their business. And so, it felt like wasn't really anywhere to to go in that company so and we had started to find that we were competing regularly with Michael Page so I came to the conclusion that it was time to move on it was I was only there a year or just over a year which felt a bit awkward you know you really didn't back then you didn't move sort of in under at least two years so it felt a bit awkward but I, I was pretty sure I was doing the right thing
0: Was your career a focus yet, or was it more around wanting to be able to do the next thing? And you started to think, this could be it for me.
1: Definitely, yeah. So in in hindsight, my dear old mum and dad were right. You know, it was, you know, I enjoyed having a career. I enjoyed being in London. So the marquee erecting days were behind me. So, um, yeah, no, so I I was focused on career, hence the reason to try and go to a bigger place with more prospects so I applied out of the blue to Michael Page. They weren't advertising for people, and went through a bunch of interviews and um, managed to get in and joined their banking recruitment team in January 1982. So long, long time ago. It's quite a small um,
0: company back
1: then, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. It was um, Michael Page back then was only London and Manchester. Birmingham started shortly after I joined. There must have been maybe 30 people in the whole company. Each day when I arrived, I'd walk past Michael Page, who was sitting at his his desk. So it was very small, but it, there was something in the atmosphere there. You, I just knew it was a company going places. They had good people and they were very in the right way, very commercially minded, but they cared about their people and they they did things well that was a door that opened and i'm really glad it did that's because uh, i was there for a long time and had some pretty amazing experience in a company that really grew very fast during that time
0: yeah. And you decided that then this the, your career is now established, as you think, this is what you want to do. So you then get very focused on, on developing yourself and growing teams, didn't you, as part of Michael Page? You were a big part in the UK. What happened? How did you end up in Australia? It's not that close.
1: Yeah, so i had been in London for three years working for the manager of the banking team who was good at developing a young professional, very grateful for what he did. So if I take you back to December 1984, I was sitting in the office around Holborn and the phone rang I picked up the phone, Nick Waterworth, and on the other end of the phone was, Nick, it's Michael. I won't try and do the Cockney accent, but Michael (laughs) was a a bit of a gruff Cockney bloke and literally said, Nick, I need to talk to you. Come down and see me right now. I hung on the phone and thought, well, clearly I'm going to be fired. I don't know what I've done, but... There's only one reason Michael would want to talk to me. So I oh, well, I better go down and see him. So I walked down to his office and he called me and said, all right, sit sit there, Nick. We need to have a chat. He said, OK, we're going to open an office in Australia. It's going to be Sydney. We want you to go. If you could tell me tomorrow. Now, do you have any questions? Now, I do not exaggerate. That was the (laughs) beginning and end of the conversation. Thankfully, I didn't have any questions because it's binary. Yes or no. I was twenty five single. It's literally, do you want to go to Australia and help you know be involved in a brand new office or not? You know, any questions I had would have been dumb. It, as I said, it was literally it was a binary situation. So the next day I said yes. in hindsight, I think for that situation where it was a new office, other side of the world, plenty of things are going to go wrong, probably more than science. He was absolutely right to. Run the conversation like that to not give me much information because he needed somebody who was going to sort of roll with the punches and yeah. and so on. So I actually think that was that was very clever. Yes. I also think probably it's a bit unfortunate that you or I could no more have that style of conversation with how <laughs> yeah. the flight of the moon. That was December '84 and something like well I I landed in Australia on the first of February. 1985
0: so um, and the rest yeah. of those history so when you obviously you got this offered you I know that your parents were influential in some of the decision making process when you're younger which is as it is did you then speak to them and get advice from them
1: I did so I I can remember I drove up to Warwick that night and talked to mum and dad as I mentioned they you know they'd lived overseas albeit in the army and dealing with various tricky situations But they had a very international background. My brother at the time was working in Africa, having previously been in South America and the US. So there was kind of quite a lot of international stuff in the family. Yeah. So, yeah, so I went and spoke to them. Company want me to go to Australia for two years. What do you think? Dad said, well, what do you think? Yeah. I think I'm pretty keen. He said, well, you should go. You should definitely go. Now, I was the youngest and possibly sort of the closest, certainly to my mum, I think, of the of the kids. That must have been very hard. You know, looking now as a parent myself with my son Harry is the same age as I was then. That's not easy, but they so did the right thing. You yeah. know, if you feel it's good for you, if you feel it's good for your career, you must go. They obviously didn't.
0: They probably
1: thought oh. you were coming back, though, Nick. That's why. <laughs> As did I. I thought I yeah. w- would be coming back. I talked to them and, I mean, how good is that to have parents who just back you and nothing to do with their agenda or their thoughts or their sensitivities? So that was fantastic. Yeah. Great parenting,
0: yeah. that. You land in Australia. As you say, you'd not been to Sydney or Australia before and very different sort of uh, networking land than you would get these days. These days, everybody knows somebody who can connect you, or you've met somebody on LinkedIn, or there is, you know, we've got a more globalisation way of working anyway. So you probably would have had some connections. How was it then when you landed?
1: Very hard. But that's all we knew, of course, like, wasn't that we had LinkedIn in the UK, and you didn't have it in Australia. Obviously, there was no interweb, as they say, it was hard slog. But Each victory was incredibly satisfying, landing a new client, completing assignments, which we did at a much lower pace than we'd done in London because it was a total start-up. But it was hard slog, you know, literally pounding the pavements, shoe leather up and down Pitt Street and George Street in Sydney. Yeah, it was hard work, but it was good work. And within perhaps a year, I can remember thinking, this is going to work. We're going to build a business here. I was a millionaire. I wasn't running it or anything. I was kind of working for the director of the office. I could sense that we were onto something and this, this was going to work.
0: And during that period of time, I know you. You said at, at times you did think, "What have I done?" And but for you, there was no going back. You were determined to succeed, and you threw yourself into more of the sporting life as well to build connections, didn't you?
1: Yes, I certainly did. Did sport not well to build personal connections? Yeah, I mean, I, I wasn't, you know. So I played rugby. I played squash and but not because I thought I'd meet people for work, but because I enjoyed doing that and it was a great way to meet people. Funnily enough, Sydney was, and I think probably still is, not that easy a city to kind of break into socially. People, I think maybe because a hell of a lot of people in Sydney grow up in Sydney, go to school in Sydney, go to uni in Sydney and then work in Sydney. So they're very, you know, it's not that transient to society as perhaps London is, certainly cities like Hong Kong maybe, So it was was a little hard to break into from a friendship point of view. So that's where sport was great. But I don't sort of know. Sometimes it might be a weakness, but I'm not very good on giving up on stuff. I can remember my first year at uni, one of the requirements was to study philosophy, a unit in philosophy. Well, I literally couldn't understand that. Like, I just couldn't get it at all. And had a couple of dark moments about, well, maybe I'm going to have to give this away, but I just refused to do it. It was a bit like that in Australia. It was a bit, so the first 12 months overall was a bit up and down, but I, I kind of um, you know, sort of gripped my teeth and just, and just plowed on. And after about 12 months, things began to fall into place, both socially and business really started to take off.
0: I'll definitely vouch that you're a determined man, Nick, having seen it in real life. <laughs> <laughs> so things started to develop and, and as you say, you know, 12 months, you knew something good was happening. Mm-hmm. How quickly did you scale your career up then?
1: So I've been brought out to Australia to start the banking recruitment area. That's what I've been doing in, in London. And I guess it was probably maybe 18 months in roughly when I became a manager of that area and we started to recruit some other people to really get some momentum going in in that team. That was a real learning curve and not all of it went smoothly. Mm -hmm. I think maybe as a lot of people when they first go into any sort of leadership role, I was pretty black and white type Mm -hmm. of person and at times too black and white in my approach to leadership so I had to kind of get some coaching on that I knew that I liked it I liked the idea of doing that job and I I liked the idea of trying to develop people but you know I had a few elbows getting in the way to start with but um, thankfully we worked our way through those
0: and then you developed grew teams and managed to work your way into being the managing director for for Sydney as well did you feel then that you had achieved everything did you feel that was all your focus had come to fruition so what happened was
1: the managing director of ambition proposed to the board to start a business in Hong Kong and he went to London to make the presentation and essentially they said well yes on one condition. What condition is that? You have to go and start Hong Kong. So this person called Paul moved from Sydney to Hong Kong, and suggested, thankfully, that I was made managing director of the Australian business, which I was. So Paul and I we'd become quite close. So even though he was in Hong Kong, we were still working very closely together, uh, and that will come back later on in this in this story. So yeah, so that would have been. 96, I think, just before the handover, I was running the Australian business and subsequently New Zealand. So that was Sydney and Melbourne and a small office in Wellington in New Zealand. That was great. I mean, by that stage, the economy was strong. We were going really well. As I said, it was only it was sort of two main offices in Australia, but they were very good. So it was just, it was a lot of fun. So that was a great time in my, my career. It was good.
0: So everything's going really well. You've uh, achieved this great role and uh, you decide to do something a little different. So could you want to ta- explain your story, the next stage of your life, Nick?
1: Yeah, sure. So i would mentioned playing rugby. So Paul and I were also pretty big fans of watching rugby. We decided to, uh, he came down to Australia and we went down to Melbourne to watch the australians played in new zealanders at rugby and julie get thumped as we usually do again and i'd had my car trucked down to melbourne because we were going to drive from melbourne to perth so across the continent because australians were playing in perth the next weekend and we thought this would be a really good idea and
0: how long is that uh, drive it's not like was, driving uh, across the, the uk is
1: it? Uh, three different time zones it took three and a half days but was Amazing. I mean, just incredible, you know, quite a lot of desert, but a lot incredible scenery, small towns, just a great feeling when we drove into Perth, you know, we crossed the continent. Anyway, on that drive, aside from enjoying that achievement, we got talking about starting a business together. And when we got to Perth, we're going to do this. Subject to getting back home and talking to our partners, we thought we should do this. I have to say, we didn't have a really clearly formed idea of what the business was going to be, but we knew we were going to do something together. So we got back to Sydney, and within a week or so, we flew to London to resign. That was quite tough, because we weren't leaving because we didn't like it, au contraire. You know, Paul was enjoying Hong Kong, and I was enjoying my job, and it was all good, but we just had this... This idea that the time was right. We both had turned 40 and instead of buying a Porsche, we decided to start a business. (laughs) Um, We resigned and then we had uh, a year out, partly notice period, and then some restricted covenants before we started the business.
0: And I know you said, I remember you saying to me that actually that year out was, was really good in two ways. One, it gave you the opportunity to probably disconnect from a company that, as you say, you loved and you were successful in and to really think about what you wanted to form for a, a company and how you would make it work. But also it coincided with the birth of your first son, Harry. So it gave you the opportunity to spend time with him, which you would never have had back then in your career.
1: Exactly right. So I've been at the company 17 years and it was very good to have some time out to sort of extricate myself from that way of thinking and that way of, of doing things. But as you say, more importantly, so this, that was August 1998 that we resigned. And in the next month, September, Harry was born. And obviously now, quite rightly, it's much more common for both parents to have more time with kids but it was unusual then, but I just loved that. That was fantastic. Yeah, that was great. So I was with him a lot in the first year of his life. So that was great stuff, yeah.
0: You and Paul started to form Ambition, and what was the core of what you wanted Ambition to be and, and to be able to formulate?
1: We actually took the time to look at different type, you know, to study different types of business. Yeah. But quite quickly, you know, literally... Travel and different things, and quite quickly we re- realized that was madness because what we knew was recruitment and we liked recruitment, and we thought we could do something interesting in in that space, but we did look at some some other things uh, so that was the the first step, and then essentially what we looked at was the things that we thought Michael Page did well, yeah and thought, well, we're not going to change things just for the sake of it, and we things. Some of the things that we thought weren't so good and we'll we won't have those so that was um that was a a useful process i mean for example michael page were and i suspect are a very well organized financially strong business with good planning very strong culture focus on promoting people internally with all over all those things were really good so we'll we'll do those you know, as some of the starting points. We went through that process. We decided very early that we were interested in building an international business. We thought the market in Australia was good, but having been in such an international company, and whilst we directly had experience for the last few years only in Asia and Australia, we had exposure through being in part of the leadership team to, the UK and other markets, we decided that we wanted to build an international business. That was quite important to us. And we also decided that we wanted – so values were very important to Paul and I. So we wanted a business that cared about our people, about our stakeholders. So that was something we were really going to build into the organisation was I talked about – you know, being financially strong and lots of planning and so on, yes, but not to become a rigid, uncaring organisation. That was an anathema to us. We wanted something that uh, an early boss of mine had said to me, you reap what you sow. That had stuck with me. And so, yeah, we wanted to focus on that.
0: And so you started Ambition once your restrictive covenants had had finished. And I think Pretty much from day one, you knew it was going to work. I remember you saying to me, "You felt really confident. You, you knew what you were doing. You had yourself in your lanes." Why was that?
1: Being in lanes. So one of the things that we'd learned was that a laser focus, not trying to be all things to all people, was what worked in our sector. So that was a, that, that. You know, that was great that we learned that. We adopted that, so we didn't try and spread ourselves too thin. Too thin. You know, early on we were focused just on accounting and banking after a couple of years we introduced technology it was narrow if you like and we we adopted or Paul came up with a phrase that we still use inch wide mile deep and that you know in many ways kind of sums up our strategy to do a small number of things but push very very deeply into them actually talking of the, the planning phase so we started in August 99 when the internet was first Coming along, and we'd got kind of everything organized, and sort of almost as an afterthought, we're always, Oh, blimey, we haven't thought of a name for the business. <laughs> and as soon as we started talking about that, the easy thing was we didn't want our two names to yeah. be in, a, in that, but we came up with this name, e careers, which we thought was incredibly cool. Internet happening, and you know, and we just thought this was fantastic. We thought, well, we'd better go along to a graphic design firm to have them look at it and give us some advice. So we went to see this firm and uh, told them our story. And the, the The objective was a very crowded marketplace. We want to stand out from the crowd. And we'd like a name that isn't our two names, but is a little bit webby, a little bit internet-y. By the way, we've got this name eCareers, and we really like that. So they said, OK, come back in two weeks. So back we go. And as they do in design, they reiterate the brief back to you. So crowded marketplace, you want to stand out from the competitors, but you'd like something contemporary and a bit webby. And then they said, if you want to be the same as everybody else, you should go go ahead and call yourself eCareers, because everybody's doing that. If you want to be different, and they held up a board with ambition written on it, we think you should call yourself Ambition. And clearly they were expecting a bit of a stash because they knew how keen Paul and I were on the eCareers. I remember distinctly, we looked to a yep. <laughs> perfect. And amazingly, the name was available, the, the URL was available. Yeah. We, could, we, could, you know, we could get it all happening. So that was a young designer called Stephen who came up with that. Uh,
0: you owe one, neck.
1: I am more than one. So... <laughs> You, know, you could you now could be working for e-careers, but thankfully you're working Thank for ambition. God, it's ambition. <laughs> yeah.
0: Bleeding green, as we say. Yeah. And quite early on, you, you decided, you and Paul decided you wanted investment and you did an IPO very early on in the process, didn't you? Again, what was the thinking behind that? Well, we had some seed capital
1: that we were, you know, happy to commit to the business. Um, but In our planning, we realized that to scale up reasonably quickly, we didn't have enough. So we needed to get some outside capital and literally didn't know how to do that. So I said, look, I have this client whose name is Paul Young. He works in Sydney at a a British merchant bank called Morgan Grenfell. Let's go and talk to him. He does that sort of thing. So I rang Paul and told him what was happening. He said, okay. let's meet now said Paul. So I thought it was quite interesting. And he meant today. <laughs> Interestingly, he had just done a deal in the recruitment sector. He'd done a, an acquisition in the recruitment sector. So he was reasonably up to speed with it and quite interested in the in the sector. So we went to see Paul. And after a couple of meetings, he came up with the idea of, of listing the business, essentially listing a business plan. And he said, I think this will position you for the future very well. And the market's strong. And I think you Probably can do it. So instead of going for private equity, talking to a venture capital firm, we listed it, and Paul did two things. He subscribed some money himself, and we asked him to come onto the board, which he did. So that was very clever. So he went from being simply an outside advisor to being a fellow shareholder and on the board, and. Paul is still on the board to this day and has become one of my closest advisors and confidants.
0: Which is fantastic, isn't it? And I think, you know, you talk about people having an impact on your life and and I know you've got a friendship now as well, but that was definitely something that really has stuck out for you, hasn't it, over the years, and a mentoring capacity as well. And as a soundboard, maybe it's more as a... Definitely. I mean, Paul and I, we are friendly, but we we don't
1: see each other outside of work. And actually, I think that's really good. So it is it is very much a business relationship. He's one of the cleverest people I've ever worked with. I and mean, he's seriously got a great brain. He's also inc- really pragmatic and very calm. One of the things, for example, that I've learned from Paul is obviously in business every now and then you get a bit, you know, something's going wrong. You're having a bit of disagreement with somebody. whether it's the competition or, you know, whatever it is, you come across these situations. And something that Paul taught me early in his tenure as a director was when you're in that situation, you've almost got to physically imagine putting yourself in their chair. Mm. Think about it. Put literally imagine you're in their situation. And that's actually a really good way to... Understand maybe where they're coming from, and often helps come up with resolutions. So that was just one example. He's been a very wise advisor for all those years.
0: Is there anyone else that you think has had a, a similar impact on your neck? My wife, yeah,
1: she's been involved in various businesses, you know all her adult life. um so she is uh, she's got a very uh, strong business brain. Is also a great reader of people, and as you might imagine, not afraid to tell me that (laughs) that either I'm taking myself too seriously or I'm looking at things the wrong way. If that's if that's the case, so so that's been fantastic. I'm I'm pleased that we don't work together. Some people do really well with being partners. In life and partners in the business, but I don't think that would work for us. But she's been very supportive, particularly, for example, because I travel a lot. Yeah. And she just takes that in her stride. It's just not a problem. So, um, yeah, that's good. But I, I do value having, whether it's sort of formal mentors or simply people who you trust and can look to for advice in different situations. And a few years ago, we through various means ended up with a couple of people involved who subsequently i couldn't put in that in that same category and that's horrible and yeah. so you know i really focus on doing business with and involving people who i do trust and you know can get counsel from but it's a very important thing.
0: And I think one of the positives for you is that you are open to being challenged, and for people to give viewpoints as well. And you know, your first response isn't no because it's not my way; it is to listen. And then yeah. sometimes people say no, but at least listen.
1: <laughs> we also talked about. Um, uh, I touched on the sort of values side of things. Uh, I might just talk about something again. A phrase Paul came up with. He said, "For us to do," he said, "We've got a good plan." And we know what we're doing. For us to do really well, we have to pass the barbecue test. Yeah. And this is the best example of passing the barbecue test I've ever come across. So after about we'd been going maybe seven, eight, nine years, we employed in Sydney a somebody in our technology team who was an Irish lady, was with us for just over five years, was fantastic. She was just Excellent at her job. She, for some reason, decided she wanted to move back to Ireland from Sydney, which still perplexes me. But uh, she decided that she and her partner were going to do that. And what they decided to do was go travelling before they got back to Ireland and started working again. And they were in Guyana in South America. They'd spent the day snorkeling and swimming at a beach, and they finished doing that. And they went to a little beach bar to have a drink at the end of the day. And literally, the other end of the table was a noisy group of Aussies having more than one drink. And they weren't really taking much notice until the conversation with these noisy Australians got on to recruitment. And basically, the theme of the conversation was how they all thought recruiters were horrible and kind of, you know, necessary evil and all these terrible descriptions of recruitment firms. And one of the people stood up and said, Well, I disagree. I was placed in my last job by a firm called Ambition, and they were fantastic and they really listened to what I wanted. That's passing the barbecue test. And this Irish lady and her partner felt pretty cool about that. So it doesn't get much better,
0: does that? Yeah,
1: but we really believe in that. Like, if you can pass the barbecue test, if you can have your stakeholders being your advocates. That's incredibly powerful stuff, and very and, and never mind that. It's also very satisfying. You, know, when you hear stories like that, whether it's me or you know any of our people, you feel good to be involved with a business that has that sort of reputation. So, um, so that was the barbecue test.
0: Yeah, keep that one in front of mind. And so you started to grow out Ambition, and you did start to look at other offices overseas. And first of all, you, you launched Hong Kong, and there was the acquisition in the UK, and Singapore, KL, we're doing some work in the US as well now, as, as uh, you know, how does it feel for you having gone back to that day when you and Paul decided you were driving across Australia, you were going to make this this firm, this new firm, this new company. How do you feel today, Meg?
1: Incredibly satisfied. I mean, it's not finished, and I don't think there is a finishing line. There's still lots for us to do and lots of lots of opportunities. But if I won't bore you with actually with our prospectus back in '99, but a lot of the stuff that we talked about in our prospectus, as you touched on starting a business in the UK, building a business in Asia, expanding in Australia, we've done those things. So now there have been plenty of bumps along the way. Some things went quickly, some things went a lot more slowly than we expected. You know, we had SARS and September the 11th and, you know, the global financial crisis, all of which were pretty big kicks in the shins. But where we stand now is incredibly satisfying. And... I love it. I still, every day, am delighted and excited to be involved. Genuinely, I'm, that's not just corporate speak. I love being involved.
0: You don't do corporate speak. That's one of the, uh, the first things I learned about you.
1: I definitely, hopefully, no weasel words from yeah. me.
0: So, just taking you back through the growth and development of ambition. Then there was so there was a period that you've just alluded to there, uh, which was golly, was it about ninety no, four? No, sorry, 2014, 2015, where things probably had developed in a, a way that you hadn't wanted or had seen and, and you needed to almost get control back of ambition. Do you want to share some of your thoughts around that? I think the
1: main thing around that time was I had got the wrong people involved and probably one in particular hadn't done enough thinking or due diligence on this person and as i touched on earlier people who in hindsight i couldn't really trust and were not values driven and it gosh it had a terrible effect on morale you know there was squabbling in the boardroom and staff could tell that they knew something was wrong And so that was 2013 mostly. And that was a very unpleasant time. Thankfully, I was able to do some positioning and get ourselves through that. But interestingly, when we were no longer involved, I decided what I'd need to do was go to every office, speak to every single person in the company, tell them exactly what had happened in some detail. So there were no, you know, elephants in the room and exactly what the plan was, which was back to basics, stick to the original plan, clear leadership. And within six or eight weeks, we'd gone from a seriously, probably quite unhappy company, not going that well, to morale recovered so fast. And I really, uh, you know, I really didn't do anything all that clever. I just was straight with people.
0: Yeah.
1: And I think that is so important. People can tell if you're not being straight or, indeed, if you are being straight. And, you know, obviously in particular, you say we're going to do that and then that's what you do. Going through that nasty time, in some ways perhaps refocused us on the basics and the right style of leadership so we came out of it strongly thankfully
0: yeah and i think you're right it you know I remember you coming to every single office and speaking to everybody and being so open and that really was a big turning point wasn't it so and it came from the heart and as you say the values system that is very dear to all of us with with our our values of pride uh, ambition interestingly i think
1: maybe one of the sort of drivers behind that was as we touched on earlier we listed the company on the stock exchange obviously doing that you have lots of disclosure requirements you know you have to tell everybody what i'm earning you know what you know what the status of the company is um you can't hide anything and whilst on, on, perhaps on, to begin with you might find that a bit intimidating once you're in the groove with it it's just the way you do things you yeah. know you just communicate pretty much everything that's going on so that people are in the loop and they feel trusted and, and so on that so that that did that became a very very important thing for us for sure
0: communication is always at the heart of everything nick isn't it
1: exactly. no people, yeah people feel that they don't need to worry about what's going on what's the future of the company and they can focus on doing their jobs then it's so much better so um, but yeah you, you touched on hong kong so i might just go back to that. So Hong Kong was the first office that we started at sort of Sydney. So Paul moved back to Hong Kong. Not long after we started up there, SARS came along. And that was very, very severe in Hong Kong. And for three months, we didn't make one sale. And I can remember the board meeting in month three, this was the the group board meeting, tabling the topic of, well, should we keep going like this looks horrific thankfully we had a director on the board who lived in hong kong we brought on because of his asian knowledge and he said you've got to hang on you've just got to keep the shingle out there because hong kong has a habit of going through difficult times but always bounces back and how about that as a prediction for <laughs> yeah. so thankfully we did hang on we got down to a very, very small team, but we we did hang, hang on and Hong Kong's now our largest office. Um, we've got an incredible team of people there. As I said, Hong Kong's for sure changed massively, but still one of my favourite cities and an incredible place to do business. So that, again, was wise advice. I suspect were it not for that director that we had on the board that we might have pulled out. And that absolutely would have been the wrong decision. Bearing in mind what's what's happened, so it's just so good to um, have these people around who've got just experience advice, complementary to what you have, and and whose views you you value.
0: And I know that there's, as you mentioned, there's been some lumps and bumps on the way, but um, always come out better, stronger, more focused. But I also know that COVID was one of the most challenging times for us as a business and something I think was the first time that you genuinely have thought that there was a worry there for you. Do you want to talk through that a little bit?
1: Yeah, for sure. So before COVID, my last trip was right at the end of February. I was in London. You yeah. might remember we did some insurance bits and pieces. And it was it was sort of blowing up at that stage. And I came back through Singapore, which was one of the early sort of hotspots and that was, that was kind of, I was a bit blasé about it. But then I, when I got to of, mm, this perhaps isn't so good. Anyway, the whole, obviously the whole thing blew up and business literally plummeted. And nobody had been here before. Like we yeah. had financial crisis before. You know how those sort of things play out. Um, but a pandemic, um, you know, obviously we'd had, Spanish flu, that's 100 years ago. You know, pandemic wasn't in anybody's memory. Didn't know how how it was going. Business confidence collapsed. And quarter two 2020 was, you know, I had some pretty dark moments. I just couldn't see the bottom. And I did have a couple of times where I talked to my wife and said, this might be it. We might not be able to get through this. It's possible we need so much capital to get through that it just might not work. Thankfully, one of the things that happened was some very, I feel, enlightened government policy in various of the jurisdictions that we were trading in was a big help to us and indeed many businesses. So, after when we got into quarter three 2020 things didn't exactly improve super quickly but they stopped getting worse
0: Yeah,
1: and there was talk about vaccines coming along so it was dark for a while quite dark but so in australia for example we qualified for a thing called job keeper where employers were you had to make meet various hurdles but were paid to keep people on your payroll and that helped enormously and there were you know as i said similar schemes elsewhere so it was very worrying having said that obviously when you're facing something of that severity it really makes you concentrate and as you remember we started meeting as a leadership team every week thursday nights and that was fantastic both in terms of practical decision making you know how do we deal with this? What do staff think about that? What do we do with this type of client? You know those very practical things. But also, I think in terms of supporting each other, because you know the way COVID played out, it was having more of an effect here at the moment. But here's not so bad, and then it would swap over, and it really brought that leadership team close together, which was great in itself, but also very powerful because everybody on the team could tell that was what was happening. Yeah, and Communicate. We'd each communicate to our people what we talked about in the previous week and decisions that were coming about. So I wouldn't want to r- rush back into it. <laughs> no. uh, I do think we've emerged quite literally in the best shape we've ever been in. The leadership team is so unified. We're more focused than we've ever been on sharing ideas and share and collaboration. So um, yeah. So it was it was a pretty big low. Followed by last year was our best year ever. I think financially, it was definitely the best year ever, but also in terms of culture, I think we're the happiest company we've ever been. So, um, culture is so
0: yeah. important too, as well. It's not just a, a tick box exercise, which um, probably leads quite nicely onto a conversation around EDI, equity, diversity, and inclusion, because you were an early adopter. Of that. And I think probably your strong, amazing wife may have some impact on that as well.
1: In terms of, for example, gender diversity, I literally get confused when companies won't give women the opportunities that they deserve. The prospect of not having equal pay for equal work. I just don't get it. Why would you do that? Why would you think you're going to get away with it? Why would you think that it's going to be anything but poisonous for your culture? so that that just confuses me. so i just I just think it's a it's just a normal, natural thing to do to give people opportunities away from gender. Um obviously, Australia is a country of immigrants. I'm an immigrant to Australia. and um, we've had great experience in employing. New immigrants, they are often seriously motivated. You know, they move from somewhere to, in our case, come to Australia. And so, you know, that's that's been good for us. But it, it just makes sense to me. It's just, you know, I don't sort of feel I'm doing anything amazing. It's just, well, that's that's just good for everybody, everybody involved
0: i think you know some again at the the heart of of what we do and ambition is around values so if you didn't believe the Nick Chair and founder of Ambition didn't believe in it, then it wouldn't be able to be a living and breathing exercise. And we do, we talk about it a lot. We're just about to launch a global initiative as well for Ambition to really focus on different elements and cultural nuances and how we can really help support and move that agenda forward. So I think it's just a, an incredibly positive thing to be part of an organisation that that is not just a tick box exercise, which is great. And what about then for you? What have been your highlights? You shared some of your challenges with us. What have been the major highlights for you over your career?
1: Obviously, moving to Australia, you know, that was, uh, had to sort of hold my breath to some extent, but Australia's been incredibly good to me. Met my wife here, started the business here. So
0: that, that you know, moved... also, They are Australian. Yeah, <laughs>
1: totally. Australian. totally. Yeah, <laughs> Mm -hmm. Um, so that you know after that uh conversation with the gruff cockney in london you know that that was huge we talked about a little bit earlier but setting off with a plan when we started ambition and not necessarily sticking to that absolute rigidly you know if we had x as part of the plan and we think well no x actually subsequently that's not quite right so we'll do y you know we don't slavishly stick to things but to end up with an organisation today that is quite like what we described 24 years ago when we started, that's also, you know, that that is very satisfying. A couple of people when we started were not necessarily all that uh, positive about our prospects, and yeah. to be able to achieve things when people have made some slightly snide remarks, you know, I have to confess that is quite, you know, that, <laughs> that's, Love it. that's satisfying I mean, the Asia piece, uh, I mean, Asia between Hong Kong, Singapore and KL, that's two thirds of our business now. So we are kind of an Asian company that for historical reasons had a has a head office in Sydney. That's incredibly satisfying because Asia's not that straightforward. I mean, it isn't a question of just saying, right, we're going to start a business in Hong Kong, off we go, and you're sort of guaranteed success. And then most recently to KL, which is a you know which is a developing economy, it's a Muslim country. You couldn't get more different Sydney or London than going to KL. But that is now a fantastic team of people and a, a really good part of the business. It also houses our shared services centre. so a lot of our internal counting and technology and collections, and cash rolls, and so on are based in in KL. So, so Asia's been huge, and I, I just I personally enjoy going to Asia, the the melting pot of the different cultures, and yeah. and the excitement in business. Sydney and Melbourne are great cities, but in, from a business point of view, they're very domestic. You go to certainly Hong Kong and Singapore, and they're massively international, and that's exciting. You know, that's that's really exciting to be building a business in the in those places. So. Um, and I think we passed the barbecue test. So that is definitely a, you know, a highlight. So it's you know, like and,
0: and great food, not just barbecues, great food in general. That's right. Last year, having
1: a great year financially, that's all well and good. But if I felt we're straying from our values and people at barbecues are perhaps not saying that good things about ambition, you know, I wouldn't be very satisfied with that. So I, I, I genuinely think the you know that we've remained values driven and that uh, you know that people more often than not say quite decent things about us
0: and what about your other location offices like London
1: like London so (laughs) for example um, well we've been on a journey in in London have we Nikki since Brexit Brexit came along the vote and certainly surprised me and uh, I think within three or four days I was in London and Between us, we took the decision to exit the financial services side of the business in the UK, which had been quite good. But I became firmly of the view that we weren't special in financial services, whereas we were special in professional services. And if we focused only on that then we could really do some good things. So we decided to do that. And I think that decision's been vindicated. So the UK business obviously had a very, very tough time during COVID, but has nicely responded. And obviously now we're building a US business out of London. So four people in London working primarily on New York and Washington DC. Um, Early days, but that looks... Very exciting. You know, I have, I feel like that's going to work. And we are only doing legal marketing. So all of our clients are law firms and we're only doing marketing recruitment. I think that's fantastic. I mean, what an elevator pitch. So Nikki, what do you do in the US? We do legal marketing recruitment. Full stop. You don't need to say anything else. Like but yeah. I just think that's great. And it, as I say, look, it's early days, but the the signs look good. So that's that's very exciting. We're also Canadians
0: doing
1: wide mile deep neck. That's it. We're also doing a little bit of business in India, out of Singapore, in the software space. That is seriously early days, but you know that could be quite interesting. And in Hong Kong, we've started a business that we're calling Amtech, which is an IT services business where we put teams of people together essentially to do software testing. That's been going a couple of years, and that looks fantastic. Really exciting. So um, reasonably bright and up tempo at the moment,
0: which we love. And I know that also one of the the you know you never waste a good crisis, as we say. And so one of the positives of COVID was it gave you the opportunity to really think about the repositioning and also to play to your strengths. So you've recently moved into more of a strategic advisory chairman's position and uh, Chris Auckland, who was the regional managing director for Asia, stepped up into a global managing director role, which, again, really plays to his strengths uh, and the attention to detail piece as well. So that's a positive in the, the next iteration of ambition, isn't it?
1: Definitely. I'm so pleased that um, that we did that. I mean, Chris is at the right stage in his career and has the right DNA to Understand all the technologies that we use to be able to relate to the 24-year-olds that we're hiring. He's a great leader, but he's really close to the reeds that are in in the business. Frankly, I'm the technology stuff from a detail point of view has passed me by. I know all the things that we're that we're using, but Chris is much more skilled at that. So for me to be in this executive chairman role has me sort of prodding and poking and thinking about the U.S. and thinking about other expansion and trying to overcome problems, and I think that plays to my strength. So that's been in place for 12 months now, and I'm delighted. I think it's really good.
0: Very well. So what's next for Ambition, Nick? You alluded to it earlier.
1: The good news is that to keep thriving and growing, we don't have to reinvent the company. We're always looking at change we have teams of people internally trying to come up with innovations. But overall, our industry is in a pretty strong position. We're in a in a strong position as a company. So I, I touched on two or three new things that we're doing. That's all very exciting. But they're not revolutionary in terms of embarking on totally new things. So we're working on doubling the business over the next three years. and. We can do that if we get it all right. We can do that within the things that we're doing today. So I think that's very exciting. It equals lots of career opportunities for people internally. So just because we're not going to charge off and, at the moment anyway, open office in Bangkok doesn't mean to say that there aren't career opportunities. There are lots. You know, these four people we have in London do in the US. 12 months ago, they were doing different jobs. So those are the career opportunities for people. So, we're building um,
0: better futures everywhere.
1: Nick, I love it. Exactly, that's exactly right. Building better futures is our uh, is our mission. I like to think we're we're doing that. So very focused on growth, but playing to our strengths. Yeah
0: doing it in the right way and where do you think hybrid working sits in with all of this and it's one thing that our clients asking us continuously um, you know what is everybody doing what is the answer what is the answer Mr Waterworth to hybrid working?
1: I don't know whether I have the answer but (laughs) clearly with the pandemic work patterns changed quite violently and out of necessity and I don't think quite rightly we'll ever go back to where they were so I think for most businesses not all totally remote is a pretty serious challenge and you know I certainly can't see us going totally remote but hybrid works it's certainly working for us there are some challenges for example people early career people so people who've you know Who are one or two years into their career, so still learning a lot. You just learn more by being with people than you do by doing this formal team's training session. That has a part to play, most definitely. But the best way people learn is by, well, if you could sit next to her and listen to what she does because she's been doing it for 10 years, go to some meetings with her and She'll model away. That's the best form of training you can ever get. So I think I think hybrid is great. I think it allows people some really good benefits in terms of flexibility. But for us, totally remote, I, I don't think would work. I think it would be less
0: practical. Definitely less fun. So it's um, important as well. You know, that's one of the things that you mentioned about the start of your career that it was fun and that you've enjoyed your job continuously through that period of time so it's really important that there is an opportunity to experience working with different kinds of people different you know from all different cultures and diversity it's so important that I think that it's it's good to have a, a hub or a, a opportunity to work in an environment with other people.
1: I absolutely love it when I hear laughter in you know in an ambition office genuinely I think that's absolutely fantastic so work should be fun yeah it's serious and it pays the bills it pays the rent or pays the mortgage but you're just going to do it better if you're having fun so and fun can mean and definitely does mean different things in different places we talked a lot about Asia some ways they do different fun than we might in Australia but it is important it's not just a fickle thing to talk about I, I do think in terms of culture and Helping people get the best Great. out of their careers. Yeah,
0: yeah so, very important. So words of wisdom, what, uh, what little gems can you share with everybody, Nick?
1: I think study and work in things that you really enjoy or put the other way around. Don't go to university and study law because you think that's the right thing to do. Don't work in this career because you think that's the right thing to do. So. You're going to have a better life if you're doing things that you enjoy. And as I described, I definitely fell into recruitment out of the vagaries of doing well at statistics at at university. But I would have stopped doing it had I not been having fun and, and enjoying it. So I do think that's really important. Yeah, so concentrate on that. We've talked a lot about values, and I can't stress enough, how important that is to me but if you if you get that right i think it can supercharge a company and your ability to attract and retain people and have a purpose without necessarily having a long involved written description of what your purpose is you might well do that but if you've got the values right that's going to you know i think that's going to set people on the on the on the right path and then also, you know, have mentors, formal or informal, people that you perhaps have a different skill set to you, people who you can trust. When we started the company, sort of similar concept, having two of us as business partners was so useful because we've, we have different skills, but also, you know, when we Came across a problem. Having two people to solve that was great. So that was very good. And I certainly, if people, you know, I think that's great when you're starting a business. But outside advisors and mentors, I think is yeah is really
0: important. Investing yourself, I think, is a really important thing, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah,
1: definitely.
0: Well, Nick, I have to say it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you today. Thank you so much for your time. I think there's so many takeaways for people. And from me, and I'm sure lots of people that work at Ambition now or have previously, a big thank you to you and Paul for actually creating Ambition, because I genuinely believe it is an amazing place to work. It'd be a bit strange if I didn't believe that. But, you know, culture and values are at the core of our business and it is a great business. So thank you.
1: It has been a pleasure.